They say a single moment can change your life. Determined to be something more, he chose a mission, a mission which few choose, and even fewer succeed. His mission was to become a U.S. Navy SEAL, one of the most elite military fighting forces in the world. He knew the mission would push him physically, mentally, and emotionally. But nothing could prepare him for what would happen next. He watched his Navy SEAL mentor brutally killed and dragged through the streets of Fallujah, just days before entering his official SEAL training. Training that is among the most difficult in the world. Through the memory of his friend and mentor, he not only survived, but thrived. Of the 173 trainees, he was one of 13 that earned the honor and responsibility of becoming a Navy SEAL. Wearing the Navy Trident, he proudly served the United States of America as a member of SEAL Teams 1 and 7 on numerous special operations across multiple deployments. He is a true embodiment of the SEAL Team motto. Earn your Trident every day. Former U.S. Navy SEAL, special news contributor on military affairs and best-selling author of SEAL of God. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chad Williams. Thank you. Thank you so much. Please take a seat, relax. Uh, if we have any uh, veterans in the room, though, or law enforcement, first responders, would you guys please take a stand? Because I'd like to take a moment just to honor those of you in the room. Let's give them a hand. Thank you so much for your service. Love you guys. Well, if you guys have your Bibles, wouldn't mind turning to 2 Kings chapter 5. That's the passage I'm going to be reading from in just a moment here. 2 Kings chapter 5. And as you guys are, are turning there, uh, I figure I could just kind of familiarize you a little bit with what my team was doing on the last deployment I was involved in out in Iraq. Uh, we were given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with this group called the ISOF. That's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so we figured the best way to do that is to not only train them on base, but actually go outside the wire and fight side by side with them. Uh, well, if you can imagine a, a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good. Because uh, we've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes. We're making the world a better place. And coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And we weren't really sure if the ISOF was ready for us to do that with them, just pass that baton off to them. So we decided for this final operation, why don't we try and make it a sort of graduation operation. We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up, and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. So they start from scratch, they're hitting the streets, and they need some intel. Well, they find this source that tells them about a man, it's an Iraqi policeman by day, but at night, back home, as it turns out, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And so they come up with this whole plan, how they want to approach the house, get in, grab this guy, extract it, all checks out, looks pretty good. Uh, but they mentioned one other unique thing. They said, hey, look, we realize, the ISOF, that we get shot at more than you SEALs do, and we think we figured out why. So we're kind of curious what they thought it was. So, all right, what is it? And they say, it's the color of your uniforms. We're like, really? The color of our uniforms? Not the way we shoot, move, communicate. Nothing to do with tactics. You think it comes down to the mere color of a uniform. And they are convinced that this is what it is. So they're saying, we're wondering if for this final operation, you'd be willing to take off your American colored uniforms. We've got a pile of ice off uniforms you guys can put on. So like, all right, let's get this straight. You want us to put your uniforms on to blend in with you, to get shot at more with you. And they're like... Yeah, it's like, fine, it's not about the uniforms. Well, the funny thing is, is that, you know, my dark complexion, start growing out a little facial hair, then get on one of these Iraqi uniforms. I'm walking around, and the guys on my team are like, hey, Williams, starting to blend in with those guys now, aren't you? <laughs> I guess I was. On that final op, there I am standing in the Humvee, that section called the tour. You see it in the movie sometimes, guy halfway out of the vehicle, and I've got the 50 caliber machine gun in front of me. And for those of you that don't know, let's just say that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. 
I've got my night vision goggles. That's the first amen to that. I love that, ever. Got my night vision goggles on, looking through my green little world, just kind of going over this mental inventory. So I'm thinking about all the things I know about this night, kind of clicking off in my mind. I know my weapon is headspace and time. That means it's ready to go. I know where this guy lives, how we're going to get in, grab him, extract. But one unique thing I know about this operation that truly does make it different than every other operation, I know this is it. This is the final operation, which means just a matter of days from now. I'll be back in my hometown, surfing in the ocean. Uh, but here's what none of us really knew about that night, was that we were actually being set up the entire time to get thrown in the absolute worst circumstances we'd been in on this entire deployment as we're being set up on an ambush, and suddenly we find ourselves engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, and do what we do best as SEALs that ultimately led to the obvious conclusion that I made it to that situation alive, uh, but it doesn't always work out that way. And so I do want to touch on how that all played out and kind of give you a little bit of a backstory of, you know, my road to becoming a SEAL, what led up to that point. Uh, but before I do do that, let's get into God's Word. And so if you guys have it, 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to be reading about a soldier by the name of Naaman. And this man could have been a Navy SEAL had there been such a thing during his time. So we'll see. So 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and I am reading from the New King James Version. It says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and they brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife, and then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus says the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Translation, equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars. And gold, silver, and some apparel. He's prepared to pay this guy off. Let's jump ahead to verse 9, where we find Naaman in route. He's on his way to that enemy-occupied territory in Israel. It says, then Naaman, verse 9, then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious, and he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand, call the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the place, and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana, the far part, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned, and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, just wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Uh, Father, we just come before you asking that you would have your hand of blessing upon this time. Lord, we know that your word does not return void. And so I pray that you would just have something for everyone individually here, collectively, uh, that you would speak to us and that we would grow and mature as Christians in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Relevance of this passage coming up shortly. Uh, but like I said, a little bit of that road to becoming a SEAL. For me, fresh out of high school, attending a local community college, I didn't have any plans at all. In fact, I find myself failing all of my classes, it's my own fault, because I'm just not showing up. I'm ditching, hanging out with friends, and now it's the end of the year, time to take finals. And that's when it just really hit me as I'm pulling into that school parking lot. It took that moment right there to sink in, like, wow, I'm turning out to be a loser. I mean, the kind of guy that none of us want to be. And when you're young, what do you get told? Hey, the sky's the limit, you could do anything you want to do. The big word potential gets thrown around, and that's all very true. But there does come a certain point in life where you kind of begin to question, like, hey, what trajectory am I on right now? 
And so here I am, all my friends, peers passing me by. I'm not making it at the local community college. I'm thinking, how do I turn this around? Because I don't want to live a wasted life. I want to do something significant. And so I'm sitting there in my truck brainstorming, and I think I come up with the perfect plan. I know how to turn this ship around. I'm going to go become an Alaskan crab fisherman. I'm watching Deadliest Catch. I'm thinking, there it is right there. One of the most dangerous jobs in the world. And I almost settled in on that. When then I thought about this, wait a minute, no, why can't I go join the military? And not just that, I want to be a part of the most elite. I want to go through that most difficult, grueling military training. I know what I want to be. I want to be a Navy SEAL. And so sitting in that school parking lot, in my truck, about to take finals, I make up my mind, this is what I'm doing with my life. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so my first order of business, the first step is this. I don't need to go to school anymore because I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. So I took off out of that parking lot. And of course, I got to let my dad know some bad news and good news as I presented it to him. And so he didn't know what was going on that year at school. So I let him know how it's not looking too hot. And of course, he wants to know now the good news. Hey, it's okay, Dad. I got a plan. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so you could put yourself in his shoes. He's just trying to be the voice of reason here. He's observed me so far in life. He's like, son. Joining the military is not like anything you've ever done in the past. It's not like playing ball or skateboarding or going to a local community college that when you decide you're over it, you could just stop. He says, if you join the military, maybe then you find out it's not for you. Or suppose you quit SEAL training. There is no getting out. You will still be in the military. Let's be clear. You're probably going to get a job like chip and paint off some boat off the coast of Japan. And so... He's right, but that was the motivational speech that I needed right there. I'm kind of one of those guys where it's like the more someone tells me that I can't do something or they think that I can't do it, they've just invested into me doing it right there. So I know actions speak louder than words. And so I storm off, kind of like not getting along with him, and uh, I decide I'm going to prove it. So I'm doing all the training, all the running, swimming, pull-ups, push-ups, and as days go by, maybe he sees that I'm taking this a little serious because he invites me inside and says, uh, you really want to do this, huh? You want to be a SEAL? Like, yeah, Dad, I want to be a SEAL. He goes, great, well, I set up a workout for you with the Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. And I'll never forget, as I start to look over at the computer, I'm thinking, my dad doesn't know any Navy SEALs. So what is this right here? And I'm reading it, and all it says in this email is, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? And I'm thinking, play? Like, Dad, you met some guy on the Internet. He says he wants to play with me, and you're arranging this right now? He goes, no, he's a SEAL, son. I'm like, you can't trust everything. I'm trying to educate him. You can't just trust what people tell you on the internet, Dad. He goes, no, this guy's a SEAL. I'm like, okay, I'll go meet up with them. Well, as it turns out, there's more of a conversation he had with this man on the phone prior to that email. And I didn't know about this till months later, but I'll give you guys the backstory up front. So on the phone, he tells him, hey, look, my son, he wants to be a Navy SEAL, but here's the deal. He really has no idea what he's signing up for. He does not know what he's getting himself involved in. And so I'm wondering if you would just be willing to do me a big favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son? And what I'm asking you to do is I need you to crush him. <laughs> like, just bury him. Beat this desire of becoming a seal out of him. And so the man thought about it for a while and sent off his reply in the email. And that is what can Chad come out and play tomorrow meant. So off I go. Oceanside, California, meeting up with a Navy SEAL in a beach parking lot. And he spots me right away. You Chad? Yes, sir. All right, Bubba. I was Bubba from that point forward with this guy. Fast forward to a run. He sends me off on a run out into the wetlands, says he's going to catch up with me. He's just going to clean up some gear back at his truck because we were doing some pull-ups and push-ups and calisthenics. And so I take off. 15 minutes into the run, when he's supposed to be there, I'm looking back, and I'm not seeing him. And so I'm running a little bit further, looking back, and as I'm not seeing him, I start to think in my mind, hey, maybe, just maybe, I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't catch up. And as I'm celebrating in my mind, looking back one more time, I see him. And he is like something out of Terminator 2. Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know that scene where the T1, like the bad guy can morph into knife hands and chase down a moving vehicle? That's the Navy SEAL coming down this trail with like knife hands for me, right? He closes the distance, catches right up to where I am, and I never saw what was coming next. I think we're just running here. Nope. 
he gets just ahead of me, and I mean, he stops, plants down, turns on a dime, and I'm greeted by his fist going right into my stomach, stopping me in my place as I'm just clotheslined, right? Impaling me. I feel my feet come off the ground, and I still remember that feeling of the wind being knocked out of me as I saw sky, and my back isn't even touching the ground yet, and then poof of dirt up all around me. And you got to put yourself in my shoes for a moment here, because remember, at the time, the only intel I had was this, some guy my dad met off the internet. Now he's got me on the ground in the wetlands. I'm thinking, child predator, like this is happening. And it doesn't stop. He's jumping on top of me now. And I mean, just ragged on me. He has me by my shirt, and I still remember that sound. Just the threads of my shirt ripping as he's screaming, going nuts. I don't understand the words coming out, but I feel spit hitting me, like in the cheek, in the forehead. But then these words do come through. Never forget these. They are implanted. He says, you want to be a Navy SEAL? You better stay three paces behind me. And there was just something about that moment right there where it all just clicked. I realized that this is it, and this is for real. And if I quit right now, I will forever be a quitter. Like, the way I respond in this moment, it is going to affect the trajectory of the rest of my life. And so he gets up, says it one more time, three paces, turns, and just mercilessly takes off. And so I'm trying to get up. I have the wind knocked out of me after running as fast as I can. So I'm making all the weird noises, and I'm getting going, but... Everything I have, I had this mentality like, I'd rather die than quit. I'd rather die than give up. And so I'm chasing after him. And I'll tell you what, looking back in hindsight, after having gone through SEAL training, which is the most difficult military training, hands down, I can definitely say that that was by far the most difficult singular workout. I should call it a beatdown session, this encounter with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvenston. We finally get to this point where he circles up. He's pacing back and forth miles down this trail. And I'm just trying to catch myself. I've never felt this way before. And uh, he's walking back and forth with these piercing eyes. I mean, he looks like he's a cage fighter waiting for the referee to say, let's get it on. And at the time, I'm like this teenage skater punk kid. I don't want to project to the Navy SEAL that I'm willing or wanting to fight him. And so I'm just kind of looking down, having myself dialogue. Like, okay, Chad, don't set this guy off. No direct eye contact. Just... Use your peripherals, right? Don't look them in the eyes. <laughs> and he breaks this really awkward tension. He just says, hey, if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? And I just told him. I said, Scott, I'll die before I quit. Well, he gets this big smile on his face. Then he goes, great. Hey, you want to meet up again for the workout tomorrow? And I'm honestly thinking, like, dude, are we going to address the flashback that guy had on the trail? I'm thinking, don't bring it up. Like, just don't even acknowledge it. I'm like, yeah, I'll meet up again. And so... I'm going back home, feeling a little humiliated at first, because I just got beat up. But what am I going to do? He's a Navy SEAL. And then I begin to realize, like, hey, if this is what it takes, I'm willing to do it. I'll do this again tomorrow. I'll do it again the next day after that and the next day after that. So I'm getting home, and now I'm excited. And my dad can't wait to find out how his little arrangement went. And so as I'm reaching for that front door, he's already pulling it open. How did it go, son? I step through. I go, Dad, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a SEAL. And I remember the look of shock on his face, and I didn't understand why at the time. Now I piece it all back together. And so it was months later, him, Scott, and I, we all got lunch together. And they filled me in on their little ambush, their setup. Uh, but I started to meet up with this Navy SEAL from that day forward. Uh, his name's Scott Helvenston, and I, I moved on in life from just being Bubba. He really took me under his wing. Eventually, I became junior. You know, he, uh, <laughs> this guy was like a second father to me. I idolized him. He's everything I want to be, and he's an extraordinary Navy SEAL. And I say that because... He holds all kinds of records. He's a world champion pin athlete. He's the fastest Navy SEAL in the SEAL training obstacle course. He's the youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training. Finished it at 17 years old. He also is the only man at the time to beat the beast on a program called Man vs. Beast where they would take a wild animal and put him up against a human being, an athlete, in a competition of strength or speed. And the premise of the show is that the beast would always win and the human being would look like a fool. Oh, well, they invite Scott to come on the program. Like, hey, we hear you're something special. It's Navy SEAL, you know, panathlete. We want to know if you'd be willing to go up against the beast on man versus beast. They trained a chimpanzee to run an obstacle course. Scott's specialty, but it's a chimpanzee. Come on. Through an obstacle course. And so he's on the phone. He's like, yeah, I'll race the monkey. And so he shows up. And I think you can see where this is going. He was the only man to beat the beast on this TV program, Man vs. Beast. He pulled ahead of the monkey on monkey bars, okay? <laughs> so you can imagine what it's like to get trained by this phenom. And so he got me ready. 
And so I sign up. I got a date. It's set. I'm shipping off for boot camp. He takes an opportunity, as he put it, to go overseas one more time. And so he's leaving before I leave. He's on the phone with me. He's telling me, all right, Junior, I'm about to do, go do this thing. He's referring to going off to Iraq. He says, I just want you to know something, though, that I've never told anybody. I've ever trained before. He says, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And so to hear those words of just affirmation from my mentor, that meant the world to me. And so I can't wait to prove him right and to get this thing going. And so he's reminding me of the timeline. He's only going to be gone a couple months. That's about the same amount of time I'll be at boot camp, and then I'll start SEAL training. He says, I'll be back, and we're going to see him make it through. So we get off the phone, say our goodbyes. So he's gone, and I'm just days away now from going off to boot camp. So I'm up one day. figure if I can't work out my mentor in person, I still know the program. I remember the workouts. I'll just do it on my own. And so there's a TV on. And as I'm looking over at the screen, I mean, I'm kind of like caught off guard and shocked because I see a picture of Scott on TV on the news. And I'm like, what is Scott doing on TV? He didn't let me know he's going to be on TV again. Smiling image of him. And then I see in the lower part of the screen, Scott's birth date followed by a dash. And it says, March 31st, 2004. And before I could even really put together the meaning of that, it switches from a smiling image to graphic video footage of the vehicle that Scott was in along with three other Americans in Fallujah, Iraq, as it's engulfed in flames. And then it's cutting to these different scenes as these insurgents had filmed everything they were doing to him and these three others as they ambushed them, dragged them out of the vehicles, they're lifeless, and then they start beating and wailing away on their bodies with sticks and rods attempting to mutilate them. And they wrap rope around their legs, hook them to vehicles, and drag them through the streets of Fallujah, arrive at the Euphrates River Bridge, string them upside down, set their bodies on fire, and then they look into a camera with them burning in the background, chanting, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. I think pretty needless to say, I'll never have the words to describe, just what all those surrounding events and moments were like. I think needless to say, it's just one of those things that it definitely changes you as a human being big time. You don't go forward the same from there. And I had a big decision to make. How do we, what do we do now? I got my family begging me now, don't go in. It's not too late. You don't have to go. And they're, they're showing me this over and over, the footage. My dad's thinking it would scare me out of it. You know, like, look what happened to him. This could happen to you. We don't want that to happen to you. You're our son. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where, where do I go from here? And I think there's a lesson for all of us that we can learn from this, and it has to do with how we deal with adversity. And so if you've made it this far in life, you've faced it. We've all faced adversity, and it comes in a lot of different forms. And here's the other thing, too, is that nobody's immune from facing more. We will face more. Hate to inform you of that, but it's imminent. It's not a matter of if, it's when. You have no control over that. Well, if you have no control over the fact that you are going to face more uncontrollable circumstances, bad news is going to hit the family. Your children are going to look to mom and dad. Mom, dad, how do we deal with this? You're the one that's going to set the tone on how we respond. And so you can't control the fact that this invades your life like a tsunami or a tornado, but you control the way you respond. You are the determiner of whether or not that adversity will be what we could call a wing or a weight. Will you allow it to be a weight that just sinks you and your family, leaves you knocked down, never to get back up again? People go, wow, they got hit by that one and they're never resurfacing. Or do you find a wing in the moment somehow, which is really just a way to get up off the ground, gain some elevation? And so, like I said, adversity comes in a lot of different forms, so it's very circumstantial. Where is it that you're going to find that wing? But here's the thing. I know and you know we are going to face more, so what should I be looking for in that moment? I should be looking for that wing, that way out, the way up. And so just to kind of give you an example of that instance with Scott, you know, the, where I found my wing was reflecting back on that last time we had a conversation. You know, when we lose somebody, that's what we do. We go back to the last time we were with them. We go back to the last conversation because, of course, it's unexpected most times. And so it becomes very important to you, like, what did we talk about? What was said? And as I reflected on that, I remembered where Scott told me, Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And so I guess you could say that really became my wing in the moment right there. It's what we call in the SEAL teams, forged by adversity. Adversity will either be your failure or you'll be forged by it. And so I had Scott's name written on the inside of my hat as a constant reminder and a motivation as I was in SEAL training to make it through. I started with a class of 173 guys 
It's called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Seal Training. This is where the rubber meets the road. Out of that class of 173, to kind of give you a picture of just how difficult it is, I suppose time-wise I could share with you something a little unique. I don't always share the most difficult part of SEAL training. So the most difficult part of SEAL training is not recorded in my book. It's not in any SEAL book. It's not in any of the movies out there. And it comes the day before you graduate. Uh, to kind of set it up, you know, the first day of training amongst all the tortures these instructors put you through, just all the running and the swimming and the pull-ups and push-ups, you probably know this. It's all over social media nowadays. That in the SEAL teams, we have dogs in our platoons. We use them. Attack dogs, bomb dogs. But what you might not know is you get a dog in the beginning of training. And that might sound kind of cool because you start off with them young, little puppy. But here's the deal. The instructors know that the last thing you want to deal with at the end of a very long day of training is some whiny, poopy, peeing dog keeping you up all night. This animal's like a little torture device, and the instructors know the sleep deprivation that it'll put you through. But you know that same man's best friend. It's true. You know, whether you like it or not, this dog does kind of begin to grow on you. As you're looking out for him, he's your little ally, your little buddy. I named my dog Nacho, right? Nacho! <laughs> but like I said, getting around to this most, most difficult day of training, the day before you graduate, see, in order to demonstrate that as a Navy SEAL, you are prepared if this is what's required of you. You have to take that dog that you've loved and nurtured, and with your own bare hands, you have to turn and break its neck. <laughs> I'm just kidding with you guys. You don't do that to a dog in SEAL training. No, 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 no. 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 You do it to a cat, all right? So, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, here's the thing. That's not true, all right? <laughs> You don't even get a dog in the beginning of training, all right? I just wanted to loosen up the mood a little bit in here because it was getting a little tense. <laughs> so anyone that had peed on speed dial, relax, pull back, okay? No animals are harmed in SEAL training. Uh, but the numbers do speak for themselves. I can, I can kind of button up how difficult is it. 173 guys started my class, 13 of that original class number still standing there, graduation day. And... Uh, Man, you can imagine what that might, might have been like. I mean, here I am, this guy that was a failure at the local community college, and then I get trained by this Navy SEAL, and here we are, finally doing it, becoming a SEAL that tried it, and I'm thinking, I am set. I'm walking in his footsteps. I'm going to have some closure here, and everything will be on the up and up from this point forward. Well, here's the crazy thing, is that not only was this one of the highest highs in my life, but it probably didn't take more than 24 hours before I really felt like I began to go into some of the lowest lows. Life really felt like it began to circle the drain from that point forward. The wind was taken out of the sails, and I couldn't wrap my mind around why. Like, I just achieved the ultimates. And it was years later, I heard a Christian philosopher over the radio say these words, and I thought those words are the description that hits the nail on the head. That's exactly what I experienced graduation day. He says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets him down. One of the loneliest moments a person will ever experience when they have achieved the thing they thought would deliver the ultimate and that thing lets them down. What is referring to right there is something I believe everyone in this room is familiar with at least to some degree. We call it the human condition. Sometimes we call it the grass is always greener on the other side. Never really quite fulfilled or satisfied with where we're at. Well, what do you want? I just need a little bit more. And so we buy into this belief if I could just achieve this dream, this goal, this achievement, whatever it is, you think, then I'll be satisfied. And so you develop a, a hunger for that next thing. And that hunger leads to some good stuff. It leads to hard work to drive the discipline. And have you ever gotten there? You put in that work and you have that moment where you achieve what you were going for. Maybe recognition, awards are passed out. And you eat it up and you are satisfied just like you thought you would be. But what happens? The satisfaction doesn't last like you thought it would. And so what do you do? Well, you don't panic here. We just kind of step back for a moment, put on our thinking cap, and after a little bit of thinking, we realize the light goes off. Ah, I know what it is. The reason this didn't give me lasting fulfillment, it's simple. I didn't go for something big enough. I need to raise the bar. I need to go that next rung of the ladder, and if I get to that next one, that's going to be the one. So you pick it out. You're thirsting after it. You put in all that hard work. You get there. You drink it up. You are satisfied. This is the one. But what happens? It's like a vicious cycle. You get hungry and thirsty all over again, and seemingly there just is no end. But that is the catch, and that is the point, is that there is an end point. 
That's the point to that whole quote. One of the loneliest moments a person will ever experience when they've achieved that which they thought would deliver the ultimate. In the end, it lets them down. The big question is this, guys. What happens when you finally arrive at a place where you no longer, like all the previous times before, can say, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just go to the next rung of the ladder. No, unlike all the other times, you can't do that this time. Well, why? Because you're at the last rung of the ladder. There is no next. You can't say, well, I'll just trek up the mountain and gain a little bit more elevation from here. No, there's not going any higher. Why? You're at the peak of the mountain. No more elevation to climb. Yet, like all the other times, hungry, thirsty for more, unlike all the other times, there is no next to move on to. And so this is not something unique at all. We see this in the lives of professional athletes, rock stars, movie stars, that seemingly have everything the world has to offer. The world is theirs. They're on the top of the mountain. And what do we see going on in their lives? It's a constant drama. As you turn on the television or read about it online, they're destroying their own lives with drugs, alcohol, committing suicide, and we can't wrap our minds around it. Like, why? Don't you realize what you have? What people would trade to be in your shoes? But maybe that's just it. They've tasted all that the world has to offer, and it's really not all that it's cracked up to be. In fact, the wisest one that ever walked the face of this planet he framed it this way. He says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in the end loses his soul? And so I guess you could say that was my issue at the time. I gained my version of the whole world in becoming a seal, but my soul was not oriented correctly with my creator. I had no peace with my creator. And that's just it right there. If you have no peace with your creator, expect to have no peace here in this life. And so I get put on a seal team. And as I'm on that SEAL team, I'm just living a facade. On the outside, I got it together. I'm good. But reality was, I was more miserable underneath it all than I'd ever been in my entire life. My only motivation, thing to look forward to at that point, was going overseas and maybe catching a little revenge for Scott, get some get back. That's not a real good thing to live off of right there. And so, as I'm on this team, and, and time is kind of passing by, waiting for my opportunity to deploy, there's some idle time. There's some time off. And that idle time is a very dangerous time, especially for a guy like me that felt like I just didn't feel anymore. Well, what was it that made me feel then? What made me feel was to go out and drink, cut loose with the guys. And that led to a lot of stupidity. It led to a lot of things looking back on it that I regret a lot. You know, just blackout nights and being informed of the things that I did and trying to laugh it off. I did what? Oh, when in reality it's just personal robbery. And then finally one night I find myself not really wanting to be in this place, but I was just trying to check off a box and make some people happy so I can go and do what I want to go do. I go to this event where a man is speaking, and he opens up to this passage, 2 Kings chapter 5. And so now, to kind of break down this passage here, this Naaman, of course I find myself on the edge of my seat listening because this guy starts to sound like he could have been a Navy SEAL, had there been such a thing during his time. And so we know this story, Naaman... He's had great success in battle. He's got this entourage of men that highly respect him, highly regard him. Even the king enjoys Naaman's company. He's this mighty man of valor, but he's got leprosy. Well, Jesus, looking back, specifically called out him by name, Naaman. Nobody during the time of Naaman, Jesus said, had ever been healed of leprosy. So Naaman has a terminal disease. He is a dead man walking. So much for all that success he has. So much for that outward man. It's all a persona. The armor that he wears. What's really going on underneath that armor? What's really going on underneath that clothing? The reality of what's really going on is he's a dead man walking. He's falling apart. He's deteriorating. Well, how quickly I relate with that man right there. And maybe many of you this morning can relate with him as well. Because when you think about it, what kind of facade or armor are you wearing? In front of your coworkers, In front of your family? And friends, a lot of people never really know what's going on underneath it all. And that is the big question. Who are you underneath it all? Naaman is deteriorating. He's falling apart. And I really felt like that dead man walking, so I find myself listening. Well, there's nothing Naaman can do to fix himself. But this little unsung hero, this little servant girl, she speaks up. She's the evangelist in the story. With confidence, she says, oh, if my master goes see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would heal you of your leprosy. Naaman's desperate. So he decides to go. He's got to get the okay from his king. King says, go. I'll send a letter. 150 miles. Enemy-occupied territory. Horses and chariots. He gets to the door. 
Big disrespect because the guy doesn't come to the door. Huge disrespect during that time, cultural thing. It's almost like the more important of a person you are, the farther they come out to greet you. That guy should have been out the door. When a king comes to town, where are the people? Outside the door? They're way outside the door. They are outside the city gate welcoming the king. So he's not even at the door. And then he gets told to go in the Jordan River and dip seven times. And so he just becomes furious, the Bible says. He turns, begins to go away in a rage. We don't have to wonder what's going on in his head because Scripture records the venting session. He's saying, I expected that guy to come out of his place. He thought he was going to wave his hand over the place and call in the name of the Lord his God. Like he was expecting some real special effects. You know, but instead he just gets treated like a casual, like a normal. And then he goes on about the water. Go wash in the water. Don't I have cleaner water where I'm from in Damascus? Like, hey, think I haven't tried to wash it off yet? And so as he's leaving in this rage, if you haven't caught it yet, what is Naaman's real problem here? I heard it. It's pride. It's his ego. And if he continues in that direction, he's going to die. It's terminal. The leprosy will take him out. Here's the cool thing is Naaman's surrounded by some men that care about him, and they're looking out for him. And maybe you have friends like this. Here's their thinking. We don't know exactly how this works. But we need to get our Naaman in front of that God of Israel, step back, and just let the fireworks take place. Something supernatural will happen. In a very similar way, sometimes we need to be that bringer, right? I just need to get my friend in front of that message of the God of Israel, and something supernatural will take place. And so they're reasoning with him, trying to get him to go back. Come on, Naaman, look, you know if he gave you some big, great thing to do, you would have done it. I mean, if the guy did come out, put on a big show, roll out the red carpet, oh, wow, how great to have Naaman. We've heard so much about you. You want to be fixed of your leprosy? We have got quite the rite of passage for you. CrossFit exercise, okay? You got to get it done in time. Otherwise, you don't get healed. Naaman probably would be like, show me where to start. But because it's just a simple thing, just go wash and be clean, what did it seem like to him? Foolish thing. Well, don't miss that. That's exactly what it says about the preaching of the cross in the New Testament. It says the preaching of the cross is foolishness. To who? Those that are perishing. No doubt about it. Naaman here is in a state of perishing. But something these guys say, not brilliant, but God can use it. He can speak through a donkey if he wants to, right? And so he decides, I'm going to go. And he's about to do what I think is by far the most difficult thing for any man or woman to do. He is about to truly humble himself. I think he's getting it now. It's not the water that's going to fix me. It's the God of Israel. And so what I need to do, in order for me to live, I need to die to self. I need to go to my own funeral right now. I need to eat some humble pie. I need to repent. And so as he turns and makes this change of direction, there's a whole lot more of just a mere physical change of direction happening here. There's a change of direction in his mind, in his heart, in emotion. He's really getting it now. In order to live, I must die. And as he's making that walk, he probably has this faith, right, that he gets it. It's not the water. It's that if I have faith in this God of Israel, he will be faithful. And he will do the heavy lifting, the hard part, clean me with the leprosy. So he dips seven times, the number of completion, in scripture, and as he comes up, in the literal Hebrew language, it says he had brand new skin like that of a baby. Now, could you imagine the leprosy being spotted and blotted? What a mess. Just struck through it. That things are falling apart. But then he comes up this seventh time, and it's brand new skin like that of a baby. I'm on the edge of my seat listening to this. And I'm thinking, good for him. I love going to the movies. I miss going to the movies, kind of. But especially during that time. Because the movies was a little bit of an escape. It was kind of like a, a time to get away from whatever's going on, the clutter and debris of life. Just for a little bit, you can vicariously live through a character as the lights go down and you're getting into the life of a hero like Batman that faces some adversity in the beginning and then through all of that, it's like he wins. Guy gets the girl in the end. Typical movie. And then what happens at this point? Well, the credits roll, the lights come back on, and that's time to go back outside and face reality. Well, I want to make a point that the credits don't roll at this part of the story. That just as God provided this way out for Naaman, he's provided a way out for you and I as well. But we have to understand our condition before we really appreciate the solution. And so for Naaman, remember, here he is, this outward man on the outside, when in reality there's other things going on underneath it all. The big question is, who are you? Who, are, who am I? Underneath it all. 
Naaman had his leprosy, and we have a disease. You could call it S-I-N positive. It's sin. And it destroys you and I. It's just the wages of sin is death. And that's not just the physical death, but it also comes along with, if it goes untreated, a second death, which is standing before the judgment seat of God and being separated from him for eternity in hell. Well, we don't want that. But nobody can wash it off themselves, just like Naaman couldn't wash this leprosy off himself. There's nothing we can do to undo our own sin, but God provide a way out. In what way? Well, we don't have to dip ourselves into the Jordan River. What he wants, well, this is what he did. He dipped his son down into the world. That's Jesus. You could call it a rescue mission, a hostage rescue mission. He came into this world, lived a holy, perfect, sinless life. And for what purpose did he come? It says to save his people from their sin. He goes to the cross, and at the cross, he trades skin with you and I. He takes our leprosy, our sin, as it were, upon himself. So that we could be switched and lavished with God's grace and mercy. He dies the penalty as though he lived our life so that we could be given the gift as though we lived the perfect life that he lived. Sacrifices himself. And then he rises again from the dead. And that is significant because it shows that he has not only power over sin, but power over death. Not even the grave can hold him down. And from that resurrected life, he declares to us, because I live, you also shall live. In other words, you too can overcome the grave. But what's the turning point? How does this all start? How do we receive this like, like Naaman? Well, for Naaman, remember, he needed to do a 180. He needed to repent. He needed to go to his own funeral. He needed to deny self. That's where it starts. That's the first word of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. According to Jesus, we repent. We say, I'm not just sorry I got caught. I'm so sorry for my sin. I want to disassociate with it. And you put your faith and trust in Jesus then. To do what? To do what the God of Israel did for Naaman. To do the heavy lifting. To cleanse us of our spiritual leprosy, as it were, of our sin. And the moment you and I do that, we don't have a man's word on it, you have God's word on it. He says, I will remember your sin no more. Just like Naaman's leprosy was wiped away, blotted out, the New Testament says, repent and be changed. That your sins may be blotted out. That times refreshing may come. Well, I heard this message, and I responded to it. It was March 14, 2007, and the scriptures are very true. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. I apprehended that I have been forgiven of my sin, which is just the weight of the world off my shoulders. But then this sense of gratitude, right, that he, he is not only my Savior, he's my Lord. And as Lord, I feel loyalty towards him. The same type of loyalty, but even greater than the loyalty I might have towards family or towards an assault leader within my team. Like, inform me on how I ought to shoot, move, and communicate. That's, in a sense, what Jesus informs us of to do. He tells you kind of how to shoot, move, and communicate through life, through the Gospels. It changes the way that you think. It changes the way that you look at things. It transforms you. And so here I am, this brand new creation and I'm no longer in that place of being miserable. I finally get what life is all about, to know my creator. And once I have peace with my creator, then I can go back and, and be a seal in a way I never enjoyed it before. In its proper category where it belonged. This is all secondary supplementary stuff to life. And that's where you get in the scriptures, Colossians 3. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so when I was being a seal and it was just me, it's me, me, me. It's like decaf. It will not deliver, all right? But when you flip it around, you say, not for me, but for thee. Now you're taking thee, the eternal one, and you're infusing him into the temporal things that you do. The in and of themselves don't carry eternal significance. But now that you brought him into it, now they do echo an eternity. And so fast forward to that final operation. I really wish I had time to get into the details. If we could reset the clock and give me like the absolute most amount of time I could have. Like give me a little countdown there. Maybe we're already over it, but... Give me whatever minutes I have to work with exactly, and I'll do the best I can to bring it all together. But that last stop, my team were in that ambush. Obviously, I came out of that situation alive. We ended up driving back the enemy, capturing the guy that we're going after. He was wounded but alive. We save his life. 
bring them into our own hospital. I was given the responsibility of actually carrying them into our own hospital, which is just a full circle moment for me. Because here I am operating within the same province where my mentor was ambushed. For all I know, this guy celebrated in what had happened to him. And now I'm carrying one of these guys that was just trying to kill us into our own hospital. And I remember looking down at him thinking, man, you are so lucky I became a Christian. Because I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> but if I can hammer one point home, it doesn't always work out this way where we all come home. Right? And so... I should highlight a couple names. One would be Michael Mansour. He was a U.S. Navy SEAL. And when he's in a place called Ramadi, Iraq, he jumped on top of a hand grenade to save the lives of other SEALs. He could have saved himself, but he did that. He suffered and died, and all the other guys, they all lived. So you can mark these words down in history. Greater love has no one than this one that lays on his life for his friends. My friend Scott, although he was killed and hung from that bridge, it wasn't in vain. One of the last things he said was, you know, when I go over there, perhaps I can make a difference. And so he was ultimately over there for the sake of freedom. And finally, one more to close in on would be the one who spoke those words of greater love, none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And he said those words at a unique time prior to going to the cross. So consider the cross this way. Just as we have gratitude for our fellow Americans that pay the ultimate price overseas, Jesus at the cross, he absorbed the blast, not of a hand grenade, he absorbed the wrath of our sin upon himself. Why? So that we could pass by that grenade, as it were, so that we could live with him in eternity. Remember, that grenade was not Mikey's problem, and sin was never Jesus' problem, but both of them. They covered that problem, you know, for us. Mikey in an earthly sense, Jesus in an eternal sense. And as my friend Scott killed and hung from that bridge, like I said, ultimately for freedom's sake, let's never forget that Jesus, he was killed and he was hung, wasn't he? From that cross of Calvary so that we could be set free from the eternal consequences of our own sin. So greater love has no one than this one that lays down his life for his friends. You could see it in men like Mike Monsoor and Scott Helvenston, and then even greater. Behold, look at the cross. That's the proper perspective of that King of kings, that Lord of lords, that Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It says, for he, speaking of the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinless, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. Why is that word might there? The word might is there for a very important reason, because we all have to understand that it's not a default position. It's not built in to life that you go on into eternity to heaven. Ultimately, it comes down to this. Will you do the Naaman thing? Humble yourself before God? Or will you continue off in that direction, the way that Naaman didn't, and die in your spiritual leprosy, sin? And it's not just a physical death. Remember, it's appointed once for man to die, Hebrews 9, 24, and then comes the judgment. And the second death, it says in the book of Revelation, is the lake of fire, place designed for Satan and his demons and unfortunately for all those that in a sense he takes down with him. He's a suicide bomber. He knows he's going down, and he's trying to take out your family. He's trying to take out you. He's trying to take out your friends. But there is a weapon that can really reach out and touch people and save them from his shrapnel. It's the gospel. The gospel message is the power of God into salvation. And so we need to respond. So you respond through repentance and faith and trust in Christ. So I'm going to open up an opportunity now as we close in prayer. For anyone here that maybe does not know God on that personal level, they don't know that they are saved, that they have a right relationship with him, that they've been forgiven of their sin, that they will go on to live with him in eternity. How does it work? We've heard it over and over. We know what Jesus did. He's the savior because he'll save you from your sin, but you need to respond. And you respond how? Self-denial, repenting, saying, I'm sorry, sincerely sorry. And I place my faith and trust in the savior to do what he says he'll do, the heavy lifting to be my Lord. And if you do that from sincere heart, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, then you have God's word on it. He'll remember that sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you thankful for this time that we've gotten to share together, just to reflect on just think how, how incredible uh, you are, God. You're good. And you have not left us without a witness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy here in America. We realize they do not come freely. That There are, are brave citizens that have stood up and answered the call, and they stand in that gap defending this way of life, being a living sacrifice. And we certainly remember those that have gone before us and paid that ultimate price. 
And now we just reflect on your son, Jesus, who paid the ultimate price at the cross. If you find yourself here, maybe realizing that you've been playing the part of Naaman, you walk in here today realizing you are a certain person on the outside, when in reality there's other issues going on underneath it all, just be honest with yourself. Who are you? Who are you when you're in your room all by yourself, the lights are off and all you're left with is your own thoughts? You know who that person is. And God knows who that person is. And the good news is he doesn't want to rub your nose in it. He doesn't want to point a finger at you or shame you. What he wants to do is set you free. You got to offer your life to him though. So hand it over. Maybe you think you've committed too great of sin. You've gone too far down into the dark side and there's no rescuing you. Don't flatter yourself. Don't ever think that there are, there's any sin that you could ever commit that could possibly outdo, could possibly outweigh the blood of Jesus Christ. You can't outdo him. And so now it's your time to do the name and thing. Humble yourself before him. And so if you would like to do that now, I'd love to lead you in a prayer where we do just that. We say we repent of our sin. We declare him our Savior and Lord. If that is you, as we're about to do this now, would you just lift up a hand wherever you're at? We'll get this straightened out. Just hold a hand up wherever you're at. We'll pray together now. Maybe you've realized that you've been playing the part of a prodigal, which is, uh, you know, someone that would label themselves as a Christian, but they've gone off wasteful living. And it's time for you to come back home. You need to get back on track with the Lord. This time is for you as well. So if that is you and you'd like to pray, please lift up that hand wherever you are. Praise God. And we'll get this straightened out. Now, those of you with your hands up, I just ask, if your hand is up and you really mean this, as we pray together, please stand up to your feet. And if you don't mean it, just slip your hand back down. I guess this is kind of a moment for you. Are you really all in or not? Because if you're not all in, it doesn't work. You need to give God an all in template to work with. And so if your hand was up and there were many of you, please stand up. But if you're having second guesses, you're not really willing to go all the way in, just be aware of that. Need you rest your head on your pillow tonight, Maybe you can confront that and deal that with the Lord yourself. For those of you standing now, I just ask that you would glance up and, and look at me, just you standing, everyone else praying. Those of you standing, just I ask that as we pray together, we take a moment here where we think about what we say before we say it. There is a scenario where you just repeat words out loud after me like an incantation and it's meaningless. What makes it meaningful is you take ownership of these words. And so this is a prayer by way of reminder of true repentance and faith and trust in Jesus. Are we ready to do that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but you died on the cross for me. I turn from my sin now, and I ask you to be my Savior and be my Lord. Thank you for loving me and dying for me and help me to follow you from this moment forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And praise God. That's worth celebrating. You guys can take your seats. For those of you that did pray, you know if you meant it. Most importantly, God knows if you did. You have his word then. He remembers your sin no more. You might be wondering, well, what do I do now? Well, remember the whole purpose of life, to know God and then what? To make him known. And what is the best way to really hit the ground running? is to get plugged into the church. You want to be on fire for God? Get close to where the fire is, right? So we keep each other incinerating as we stick together. It's that one coal on the barbecue that falls off, trickles and goes off in the corner. What happens to it? It cools off. It goes out. You want to stay on fire? We got to stick together. Iron sharpens iron. Let the sparks fly. And so we want to stay connected with all of you that did respond. And I think you might have a card maybe on the back of your seat or somewhere near you just to fill out some personal information. And then please come to the front at the end or meet some of the leadership team and just let them know. Like, hey, I made that decision to be a follower of Christ and ask them, what can I do to really hit the ground running here? And then finally, one last thing. Someone was asking about the frog on the shirt. It does have a significance that needs to be pointed out. I think they, they asked if it was like from Hot Topic in the mall. So the frog, there's a frog you might see like on the back it's like a skeleton we call it a bone frog so in the seal teams we're known as frog men the bone frog is something that we wear to honor and remember fallen frog men 
And so it has those words, greater love has no one than this one that lays on his life for his friends on the back. There's no scripture reference though. There's no John 15, 13. Why? Because people always ask about the frog wherever you go and it's a great opportunity to share with them. You know, this is, represents these guys that shed their blood, these seals that shed their blood for your, your earthly freedom. And they're, oh, wow, I didn't know that. And they go, those words, I, I recognize them. Those are good. What is that, Socrates? You're like, no, that's Jesus. So if it had John 15, 13, they would not ask, but they step right into it. And then you let them know that just as these guys shed their blood for our earthly freedom, this Savior shed his blood for your eternal freedom. And they're always like, I never thought about it that way. good evangelistic tool uh finally do you guys want to know what happened in that ambush okay you got to get the book because we are out of time we're out of time god bless you guys thank you so much for your time god bless god bless you hey give it up for chad give glory to god and I feel
didn't bring happiness and peace to the hearts of our people. There's something else 